Hello and welcome to episode 1608 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Oh, Sam. Hello. We are recording on Monday afternoon, so we've seen a couple World Series games over the weekend. They were quite exciting. I guess uh, we saw three since our last episode. One of them was not so exciting. One was all-time great. One was very good. And now we have the Dodgers one win away from winning a World Series. So I guess we should start maybe with Saturday's game, unless you have any other banter you want to bring up. No, go ahead. All right. So we were actually doing a Patreon live stream during game four, and it started out uh, innocently enough, and I didn't have a sense that we were watching an all-time great, memorable World Series game, but it obviously was one by the end. And it's tough when we're doing these streams because it's you and me and Meg and sometimes some guests and we're following the chat and we're talking during ads and my mind is not really as laser focused on the game as it would be if I were watching by myself because we're not doing play by play. So we're just kind of chatting. Sometimes we're not even talking about the game. And then it kind of crept up on us. I think that we were watching a, a really great game, especially because it became a really great game in the last play. And as you said at the time, usually we've been talking for four hours by the time those things are over and we can't wait to say goodnight, goodbye, everyone. And this time we just hung around for a while because it took a while to even figure out what we just saw, just to see the replays and dissect who was at fault and who did something good. It was really one of the most exciting plays. Someone emailed us to say that we should draft our favorite moments from that game, but they would probably all be from that last play. And you could probably do a draft almost of just that play. Yeah, yeah. Did I? I mean, this, eventually everybody tries to rank everything. Did Did you see anybody <laughs> trying to? I mean, I I know we all said, "Wow, that was one of the greatest games ever, one of the wildest finishes ever," et cetera, et cetera. Did, have you seen anybody actually try to to put a a number on it? Well, Dan Simborski did a post for Fangraphs where he quantified the most volatile games in postseason history. He just took the total change in win probability and divided it by the number of plays. And he found that it was the most volatile game in postseason history. Wow. But, yeah. So Glad that was a uh, yeah, fun way to look at it. And a lot of that, of course, was contained in that final play, which was one of the most pivotal postseason plays and, and therefore any play of all time. Just because the race came from behind to win it, friend of the show Dan Hirsch noted that it was the 20th most momentous hit by championship win probability added. And of course, most of the ones ahead of it were in Game 7 or Game 8 even. The only ones that weren't were Bobby Thompson's shot heard around the world, Joe Carter's walk-off, and Cookie Lavacetto's double in Game 4 of the 1947 World Series when he broke up the no-hitter with a walk-off double. Just those legendary moments and Brett Phillips. And there were so many elements to that play. I would like to see, you know how you did that article one time about like breaking down a single play yeah, to- the, the win. <laughs> are you talking about like like the, the changes in win probability within the play itself? Yeah, or, kind of or you did like how does war work and, and you divided different uh, amounts of credit for mm. each person in the play, that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. I would, I would like to see that just because uh, I, I think one of the nice things about this play is that 
there was a hero. There was Brett Phillips. This unlikely hero wasn't expected to be in the game, arguably shouldn't have been in the game. You could argue that Kevin Cash actually made a mistake pinch hitting for G-Man Choi when he did, not really having a, a first baseman and with Choi's lineup spot coming up again in the game conceivably. And then you end up with Brett Phillips and the Rays certainly didn't want Brett Phillips to be the person hitting there, but he was. And he got the single and the single would have made him a hero on its own, even if it had just tied the game. And uh, I think someone emailed us to say technically it was not a game winning hit because the, the run scored on an error, the, the winning run for the race scored on an error. But there were so many different stages to that play. There was that hit and then there were the four different mistakes at minimum by the Dodgers. And I think the nice thing was like you invoked Mickey Owen as we were winding down that stream and and saying that, you know, you wondered whether it would be a, a game like that where we would maybe remember it as the insert name of player who screwed up game, you know, the Buckner game, the Owen game, those famous sorts of games. I don't think this is one of those games because you can't blame it on any one player. It was like three or four different players on the Dodgers who contributed to that play going against them. And so there isn't really a scapegoat or one person who has to wear this. It was a, a true team effort in in the loss. Yeah. What was Chris Taylor doing, though? Like, there was no play at home, right? Uh, uh, there was, I don't think so. There was no chance. No, A two-out single that's kind of not hard hit, not directly to him, with one of the 15 fastest people in baseball trying to score. There's, there's absolutely no way there's a play at home, right? I saw some people suggest that maybe if a Rosarena had not fallen no no that, no 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 no. Yeah. no. That, that okay you mean the first Kier, run that scored. yeah on yeah. yeah yeah no i don't think so and so if you're i mean if you're gonna pick an unforgivable moment i think it would be charging as though there was a play like mm-hmm. he came up throwing i mean he he came up throwing just he didn't have the ball yeah like he was winding up to throw as he realized he didn't have the ball so that's probably the one moment. It's actually, in a way, kind of difficult to even figure out the Muncie Will Smith yeah. conundrum. Like, uh, I, I mean, I think that you have to be in their heads to know which one of them feels like they failed the other. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably the throw. He was. It, yeah. It's a hard throw, you know. Like, he's really close to the mm-hmm. catcher in that situation. First basemen don't relay. Like. The first basemen are cutoff men. They're not relay men. And so they they stand there so that they can stop the throw and then, if necessary, throw to a different base. But they're there to keep other runners from basically, you know, advancing by being a, a cutoff man, not a relay. If, if you're relaying, then usually you're throwing from a lot further away. And so for a catcher to get a fairly firm throw from that angle at, at that closeness is already kind of challenging. And then, I mean, it just, I would guess, I I mean, I watched that, I don't know, 15 times and tried to put myself in their muscles. 
and it felt to me like the throw like it the, the throw was jerked a little bit mm-hmm. uh if you sort of i think if you watch muncie with the, the sort of the follow through of his throw it looks slightly unnatural like maybe he's like a little hesitant or uh, i don't know a little 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 snaggy perhaps mm-hmm. with the throw and and i think that it only it, it only has to maybe be off by a little bit to the backhand side for it to be you know a, a sort of a deceptively hard throw to catch so yeah. i think i tend to think that muncie probably would like to have the throwback more than yeah then i would think smith would have but it's I hard so to know too. you're right the, the, you're right that the blame is sort of distributed and the fact that you have i mean if there is a sort of uh like easily identifiable goat in the play it 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 would be a Rosarena. <laughs> like he's the one who, <laughs> who tripped running around the, you know, the bag. And of course, he's not on the losing team. He's the winner. He's the one who's yeah. patting the, the plate and he's like the iconic picture of hugging this home right. plate. So in, in some sense, the fact that the chaos engulfed both teams probably spares us a little bit of the sense that there was one one goat or one mistake. Yeah, there's no Snodgrass's muff here. There's no Snodgrass. I guess there was a muff. (laughs) But the thing about the throw, I I think I agree with you that the Muncie throw was worse than the Smith non-catch. And also, like, Smith didn't know that Arena had fallen down. So he was assuming it would be a a bang-bang play at the plate, right? So he was trying to glove the ball and then apply the swipe tag in a single movement, which he probably would have had to do if Rosarena had not fallen, which he couldn't count on Rosarena somersaulting between third and home. So he was trying to apply the tag as, as quickly as he could, as he thought that he needed to. And so that's sort of why he screwed up. So you can't really say the same about Taylor, I guess, in center field, that he had to rush the, the throw because, as you said, he probably didn't. There was probably no way to stop the tying run from scoring. So, But even Taylor, I mean, Taylor wasn't supposed to be playing center field. <laughs> like, he was playing center field because Bellinger's back was hurt, and that's why he was out there. And he's usually a, a left fielder or a second baseman. He has some center field experience, and, and I don't think he's incompetent out there or anything. But it's not even his regular position. So all sorts of strange things were happening on that you know, play. You know, I'm going to get a little mystical here, but like I sort of think that there's a decent chance. I maybe believe that, in fact, it was likely that if a Rosarena hadn't stumbled, he would have been out because mm-hmm. the odds are that... I mean, I, I think that a throw from Muncie, an, an accurate throw from Muncie that Will Smith caught and then turned and tagged a runner in normal circumstances, I think a Rosarena would have been out. Now, I might be off on that, but I think if he had just run straight straight ahead and everything else had gone normal from the time Chris Taylor picked the ball up again, I think he might have been out. And so you could make the case, that, like there's a case to be made that a Rosarena stumbling and falling actually was what saved the play for the Rays because now Muncie turns and he looks and he sees this completely unexpected scene like he he probably should have run at a rosarena in fact probably i don't know but he turns and he's expecting to see one thing and instead he sees a unicorn and then will smith who like you say is expecting contact he doesn't know exactly what's going on but i think he must know that something's slightly askew because 
there was probably like the third base coach was yelling at a Rosarena to get back. And he probably maybe he even heard some of the tumble and he doesn't know what's happening at this point. He doesn't, he probably knows that something happened to a Rosarena. I mean, he can tell that a Rosarena is not at the plate yet, which he basically should be closer. And I think he could sense, I think, I think he could sort of sense that something weird was happening that he was not privy to. And that's probably a little bit of a scary thing when you're the catcher in that situation. So between what Muncie saw and what Will Smith felt, I believe that's probably part of why the the throw from Muncie to Smith was not able to be executed. Mm-hmm. And that's what perhaps saved Rosa Reina, who in normal circumstances might've just run hard, been tagged out, and that would have been been the whole thing. And so, so for the next, you know, for the rest of his life, Rosarena can think of how f- fortunate it was that he stumbled mm-hmm. and tripped. And so if if that's true, then maybe Chris Taylor can also think that in a larger sense, he was where he was supposed to be. And that ultimately, he this all happened for a reason. And that, in fact, this will be somehow redeemed <laughs> for him <laughs> in his life. And I think that Muncie can think that. I mean... They, they can all think that. Muncie hit a 9 million foot home run the next mm-hmm. day and put the Dodgers ahead. And maybe in his mind, maybe he needed to make that throw in order to hit that home run. Until one of these teams loses the series, then I'm not willing to say that anybody mm-hmm. is not the winner. Yeah, and if the Dodgers win the series, then that game, I don't want to say it will be forgotten, but it won't sting so much for well, them. It, yeah, and in fact, yeah. it, the fact that it will be remembered will make the whole series remembered more. It right. will be like considered a greater World Series, you know, just a greater World Series generally, a, a more historically remembered one. And if they're the winners, that's great. They Like everybody remembers the World Series they won, whereas mm-hmm. otherwise they could just I mean, you know, it probably won't be because of the pandemic anyway, but uh, some World Series are just like the 37 World Series where most people don't remember anything about them or who won. Mm-hmm. And we haven't mentioned Kenley Jansen, who played a part in this inning, too. Even that is kind of confusing because he gave up that hit and he gave up multiple hits. He, he gave up the, the Kiermaier single that uh, just, you know, barely fell in, really. And the kind of confusing thing is that he, he gave up those hits. He's He's charged with at least that first run, but he didn't give up hard hit. Balls, those were both, uh, you know, soft little liners, if you can call them that. But also, it seemed like he got away with some pitches where we were watching at the time and kind of cringing at some of the pitches that he threw and some of the pitches that he threw to like a Rosarena before he walked him. It, it just seemed like he wasn't really getting the cutter working the way he wanted to. His velocity was down again. He was maybe getting some pitches like just off the inside corner, but he was, it just, it wasn't cutting and, and biting as, as much as we're used to seeing kind of the, the peak Kenley cutter. So it seemed like while he wasn't hit hard, he kind of got unlucky in that sense, but also got lucky in the sense that he could have been hit hard with the pitches that he was throwing, which were just not at all confidence inspiring and maybe not a coincidence that he did not come in in the save opportunity the next day. It was Trinan pitching for a third consecutive game. And of course, Kenley also came in for some criticism for not backing up that play. I tend to think that even if he had backed up, it wouldn't have really made a difference. Oh, no, it would have been. It made a difference for Chris Guccione because yes, if, yeah. if Kenley had been in position to back up and the ball had gone off of Chris Guccione's leg, 
to prevent Kenley from backing it up. This mm-hmm. would be the Chris Guccione story right now. Yeah, we would maybe. be we would be all because he wasn't watching the ball. He was watching. I think I think I'm remembering this right. He was watching. He was looking at the runner, and so the ball comes in, and he's not looking at it. And so when it comes off Will Smith, it, it hits his leg, and then he looks down. And he's like, "What?" Uh, <laughs> and so if Kenley had been in place, in in position to back that up, then. Guccione would have deflected away from him, and I think that then we would have had a totally different goat, maybe, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. I don't think Jensen would have been in position to field it and and make the tag or or something. Like, I don't think they would have gotten the out, but maybe it would have changed things in the way that you're saying. Yeah, yeah I don't know if a Rosarino, he had stopped. So if the throw gets past True. Will Smith and goes straight to Kenley, a Rosarino's in the middle. He's in no man's land. I don't think he necessarily goes forward especially mm-hmm. because his third base coach was apparently had been telling him to go back so it's i mean we'll never know it who knows <laughs> who knows at all but if the ball goes past will smith to kenley jansen backing up then does a rosarena then retreat try to retreat uh, who knows yeah well, that's the great thing about this play. I guess there's so many parts to it. We watched it 15 times. We've been talking about it for 15 minutes, and you can still keep analyzing it because there's so many what ifs on this single play that you can imagine things going totally differently, or what would have happened if this had happened. And even though we have every possible angle and we have stat cast, and I'm sure there have been and will be breakdowns of every aspect of it, it's still something that we can talk about and speculate about endlessly which is great this is just one of those plays i'm happy that we have all of the video and all of the data because otherwise it would just be one of those things that maybe you hear like oh this guy he fell on the way but if you couldn't see it and uh, examine it with your own eyes it just it wouldn't be as interesting you'd be relying on second hand third hand fourth hand testimony and it just wouldn't be as fun this is uh it's an all-time great exciting conclusion to a game and because it happened in a world series game it's uh, all the more memorable and it was a good game up to that point too this was just the capper but up to that point in the series there hadn't really been anything weird and there hadn't been any lead changes until game four and then suddenly there were a few lead changes and we haven't even talked yet about the decisions that led to this outcome so the fact that the Rays come back to win that it ends up being a one-run game then places even more of a spotlight on Dave Roberts and the moves that led to that point and we were kind of focusing on some of that and talking about that as the game was going on the decision to put in Baez against Brandon Lau the decision to leave in Baez the next inning to give up another game-tying home run. It's pretty rare, probably, certainly in this era, that you would see a reliever give up multiple leads in a World Series game. And so I guess I've seen defenses of Roberts. I've seen condemnations of Roberts. I think because we're also used to seeing Pedro Baez do this just because like the Dodgers are always in the playoffs, which is one of the things that I like about watching this team. There's so much history with this team and with these players. We've been watching this team in the playoffs since 2013, 
And it's so much fun. It's like watching a, a sitcom or something where you know all the characters and you remember their arcs from earlier seasons and there are all these callbacks to everything. And yeah, sometimes it gets tiresome, you know, when we're talking about Kershaw and Roberts over and over and over again. But while it's nice to, you know, the Rays come along and we're introduced to Mike Brasso or, you know, Brett Phillips has a, a big moment, it's kind of nice I think with the Dodgers the fact that we've been seeing these guys year in and year out and we're rooting for redemption for some of them you know guys like Seager Bellinger who struggled early in their careers in the postseason now they've made good they've had these big moments or you root for Kershaw and they're always there but because they haven't won we aren't sick of them I don't think you know like they haven't broken through it's not like they're dominating they dominate in the regular season but They haven't won in the postseason, so we're not tired of them yet. We're not like, all right, we've seen enough of the Dodgers because uh, they haven't had their big moment yet. So I think uh, I appreciate that. So, you know, when Baez gives up a big hit, that it's like, oh, you remember all of the previous big Baez hits. And so you can certainly critique Roberts. It, It was odd on the surface, I think, to bring in a righty to face a lefty, but it's a little more complicated than that because there was one out and he was going to have to face uh, at least one more righty. I think Adamas was due up next, and then there was the possibility of a, a pinch hitter if he had brought in a lefty, then maybe that lefty if he hadn't gotten loud, then he would have had to face two righties, and Baez has career reverse splits, so there are all these different ways to analyze that decision, and I think also, at this point, I, Roberts is kind of like out of great options, or they're all sort of interchangeable, which even opens him up to more criticism because there's no like go-to guy in that pen. It's not like, oh, high leverage spot, you bring in this guy that no one will question it. So whatever he does, it's almost like all these guys are sort of in that same range where they're not bad, but they don't give you a a great feeling of confidence. And so whatever he does, you wonder if it would have gone better if he'd done something else. I find the the confidence level in in relievers, particularly non closing relievers, but I guess in all relievers, to be funny because it's sometimes I I have a hard time figuring out exactly what people are reacting to, and like Baez, everybody everybody hates Baez. <laughs> like he's he. I mean, that's what his role has been in this sitcom is like he's yeah. the the player that you don't think about until October, and then October comes around. And you either look at his numbers and go, wow, he had another good year because you're surprised. You thought that he was bad because you remember him from October. Or if you're not paying attention at all, you just go, why? I don't understand why the Dodgers keep going to this guy year after year after year. Like the general sense, I think, among the October baseball watcher is that Pedro Baez is just not who you want on the mound. And he's also really slow and annoying to watch. Yes, he is also that. And yet Pedro Baez is, is both very very good he's been very mm-hmm. good for for a number of years and extremely consistent yeah. like his era pluses over the last five years 132 140 135 134 135 that's pretty creepy how consistent and mm-hmm. if you were to compare him to like for instance if you just compare him to say josh Hader over the past three years josh Hader has an era that's i think 0.3 runs better than him and Hader, everybody would feel really confident bringing in Josh Hader for two and a third innings against the middle of the order. And with Baez, it's like he's warming up. Anyway, that I was thinking about this because over the course of the last seven years of baseball, 
if you just compare Pedro Baez to Blake Trinan, probably objectively speaking, Baez has been better for all but like 14 months of that stretch. And the 14 months are not the most recent 14 months. And yet I think everybody kind of has a lot of confidence in Blake Trinan and Mm -hmm. not much confidence in Pedro Baez. And I agree. I also have more confidence in Blake Trinan than in Pedro (laughs) Baez. But I don't know why. I'm not exactly sure what I'm reacting to. And I'm not sure what other people are reacting to. And I wonder if if there's any logic to these things, if we have a sixth sense about when relievers are actually good and when they're not, or if we don't have any logic to this at all, because yeah, I guess that's my whole point. It's, yeah. it's got to be a tough job managing. Maybe that's my point. <laughs> well, this year his ERA was in the range that it always is, but his peripherals were worse mostly. But it was also 17 innings. <laughs> so you look at like his, his FIP and it was high and his XFIP was high and his strikeouts were a career low. And his BABIP was 167, which is why his ERA is so low. But do you just accept that he is what his peripherals are now? Or do you say, well, it was 17 innings, so who knows about anything and you trust the larger track record? I don't know. But I think that was sort of a, a marginal decision either way there. I know Ben Clemens ran through it at Fangraphs on Monday and he concluded that it was probably not the best possible move to bring in Baez and that maybe Victor Gonzalez would have been a, a better choice at that point. But he decided that it, it wasn't that big a difference, at least in terms of expected outcomes. But I think what you could critique more maybe is leaving Baez out there for the seventh After, apparently, according to him, Roberts told him he was done, and then the Dodgers took the lead, and he left Baez out there to get another inning, and then he gave up the home run again, the Kiermaier homer that time, and he got out of the jam, got the double play, but gave up the lead again, and that, I think, maybe that just comes down to, well, if you tell someone he's done, then, you know, it's like uh, anyone who's been in some sort of stressful situation or, you know, your your body prepares to to do a certain job. And then when that job is done, you relax. You have the, the post-adrenaline high. And then to have to get back up again, that can be tough, I think, when you're, you know, running a race or something. You know where the finish line is and you can ration your energy to get to that point. But then... If uh, they say keep running, then you're exhausted after that. So whether that played a part in that homer, I don't know. But generally, when you tell someone he's out, there were almost like uh, echoes of the the Rich Hill debacle with Roberts where, you know, he either wasn't on the same page with the pitcher or kind of changed his mind in a way that uh, doesn't seem ideal. So I think that was going to lead to a lot of criticism anyway, just because uh, people are sort of used to Pedro Baez giving up big hits and Dave Roberts making bullpen mistakes. So it's almost like you've seen that episode so many times before that you're just going to assume that this follows the same arc as those previous instances. But yeah, I I don't think that was probably ideal, but also it could have worked pretty easily and then we wouldn't even be talking about it and we wouldn't be talking about that game ending play either. Over the past three years, Pedro Baez has a better ERA than Diego Castillo. He has a better FIP than Diego Castillo. And this year, he also had a better FIP than Diego Castillo. (laughs) 
He allowed two more runs in the regular season. So his ERA is worse th- than Diego Castillo's this year, although it's still very good. And yet, like the World Series broadcast is talking about how sometimes you need to bring your best reliever in to get the save in the seventh when Diego mm-hmm. Castillo appears. And when Baez <laughs> appears, it's like, what's Dave Roberts doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is like the inherited runners in the postseason, right? He's yeah. he's allowed most of his inherited runners in the postseason to score. But it's only like it's like it was like 10 out of 17 or something like that. It's it's not that many. It's just it's inherently going to be a fairly small sample, even though the Dodgers are there every year. But because we've seen it and because Dodgers fans have suffered at his hands all of those times, they uh, are scared to see him come in. So, yeah, if you replaced Pedro Baez with uh, some different person with the same stats, it, it probably would not have the same baggage so you have to decide, like, do you think that Pedro Baez is actually truly worse at allowing uh, runners to score that he inherits in the postseason than he is during the regular season? Or is that just a thing that has happened before? So I don't know. But that was a, a really wonderful game. And uh, I'm kind of glad that it worked out the way that we did so that we can have the the memory of that ending. So the game on Sunday was a little less eventful. It almost had to be, but this was uh, the second Kershaw start of the series and a less stellar Kershaw start, but good enough. He got through it five and two thirds, right? It, it looked like he would lose it, that he might just fall apart at points, but that did not happen. And one reason why that did not happen was because of a, a play that he helped make on Manuel Margot's attempted steal of home. The first attempted steal of home in a World Series game since 2002 would have been the first straight steal in a World Series game since 1955 and Jackie Robinson if he had pulled it off, but he did not. And watching at the time and even watching replays, I'm still sort of surprised that he wasn't safe. I mean, he wasn't. He was out. He should have been out. But when I see like the moment that Kershaw realizes that it's happening, it yeah. doesn't seem possible to me that he can get the ball to home plate in time for Margot to be tagged out. And yet somehow that happened. Yeah. I mean, it, when you watch it, it looks like a really smart play. <laughs> like, yeah, it does. We talked about uh, on the Patreon thing, we, we talked about why people love sacrifice bunts so much, why people who love sacrifice bunts love them so much. And and the theory that I offered was that throughout the course of your life, usually when you see people try to, you know, especially non-pitchers, try to lay down a sacrifice bunt, they're they're successful. It's a high success pursuit. And the fact that you're successfully not actually doing anything to advance your team's chances of winning is almost beside the point. Like it looks like, wow, that that if you want to do something uh, successfully positive that's a good high percentage play and so so people really like it whereas going up there and trying to hit a home run is fairly low percentage play because you usually won't hit a home run but the the reward is obviously worth it and so we like hitters who hit home runs but uh, other people really like to see that high percentage sacrifice play and i think that margot my sense is that he he's sort of come in for like well that play is seen as quite controversial and maybe that that was you know a, a bad play that it was unnecessarily you know risky that uh, n- that's not the moment to try to do something that's never done but really if you think about it he only needed to be successful maybe one every four one every five times to justify it given where the the rays were in that inning and 
I mean, I'm watching it. It seems like a miracle that the yeah. Dodgers successfully threw him out, tagged him out. It looked like he timed it well, mm-hmm. that it was a play that in a with a, a slightly worse tag, a slightly worse throw, certainly a more, I mean, it would take what, a 50th of a second more for Kershaw to not figure out what's going on. Yeah, for that to to go sideways and 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 very easy to balk. I mean, I think that this is just to get Kershaw out of the way. I mean, I think this will be remembered as as a as one of his you know most defining postseason moments, maybe mm-hmm. as memorable as any of his his sort of failures. And I mean, he handled it extremely well. It was an incredible play by Kershaw. Yeah. Now, I will say though. And maybe the rules of the game would provide the answer. Maybe someone who knows the rules actually better than I do can explain why this is this is the case. But why did Kevin Kiermeyer back out of the batter's box? It, it, if he stands there, mm. the pitch hits him. It's not a pitch. It's a throw. But the throw hits him. And I know that the batter has the right to the batter's box when the catcher's throwing the ball to try to throw out a base runner. So you'd think he would have the right to the batter's box when the pitcher's throwing the ball to throw out a base runner. And so it just seems to me that, that there was a there was another avenue there for the Rays to have maybe gotten that run home. Uh, but that I, I'm sure that he went, wait, what's what's going on? And then he <laughs> sort of fled in, in terror. I mean, no, it doesn't seem like anybody knew this was happening mm-hmm. except for Marco. Anyway, I liked I liked the play. From Margot's perspective, yeah, I like the play from the Rays' chances of winning perspective, and I thought that Kershaw and Austin Barnes really both did a fantastic job. The throw home was not a very no, good it throw wasn't home. Great. So if you were going to say anything, it's that uh, it wasn't a very good throw home, and Kiermaier may have, in some sense, bailed him out by by vacating. I mean, even if even if the throw isn't going to hit Kiermaier, or even if Kiermaier is not going to allow it to hit him, I feel like it gives Kershaw a harder target if he's standing there in the batter's box yeah i saw that jason stark tweeted that kevin cash asked a question about that play he said if kevin kiermeyer would have swung and hit that ball does anybody know what would have happened yeah and uh, jason said that he assumed that it would have been a dead ball and other people thought that it might have been some sort of interference or if kiermeyer had uh, squared to bunt or something and then pulled back and and not made contact then does that count as hindering the fielder is there interference or obstruction or something so yeah that's uh i don't know exactly what the ruling would yeah. be there it is a weird, there is either a very specific rule for just this situation or else it is a gap in the rules that has existed for a million years because <laughs> you could imagine that like once Kershaw steps off the mound, off the rubber, he's no longer throwing a pitch. And so technically Kiermaier doesn't have any right to hit it once he steps off, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And so is he expected to know if you're the hitter? And the pitcher suddenly steps off with his back foot. Are you expected to see that, process it, and know what to do? That's a lot to ask the the batter to tell him that he's not allowed to swing. Mm-hmm. And if he gets a free swing, then, I mean, it would be very dangerous. But then you could almost imagine that, well, I mean, he, he wouldn't swing. But he would. it would be a free swing for him, yeah. right? Uh, Yeah, there's rule 6.01A3 says if a batter hinders a fielder in making a play at home, the runner is out, but he wouldn't really be interfering with the fielder necessarily. But then there's 
Another rule, 5.09b7, that says any runner is out when he attempts to score on a play in which the batter interferes with the play at home base before two are out. With two out, the interference puts the batter out and no score counts. <laughs> but yeah, Kershaw was not on the mound, so... Anyway, I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure that I'm pretty sure though that he does not have to vacate his mm-hmm. batter's box, and mm-hmm. and it seems like even no, no matter what, it feels like you would want to be there while the pitcher is making the pitch. You wouldn't want to vacate until the the throw has at least come in. Yeah. Anyway, Margot got a really great jump because Kershaw has that long setup, and he's a lefty, and he couldn't really see what was happening. And apparently, Muncy was the one who shouted out to him that Marco was going, and that this was something they had talked about beforehand, that Kershaw had asked him at some point to let him know if this were to happen. And so Muncy spotted it and yelled out to him, and somehow he had the presence of mind to get it home. And as you said, it was not a perfect throw. It was kind of high and uh you know he he had to sort of reach for it to apply the tag but just barely got it in there but it mm-hmm. was so close yeah. that really i think it did justify the attempts you know it whenever you try something that is that unusual and it doesn't work people are going to question it but the fact that it came so close to working that almost everything had to go right for it not to work i think shows you that you know given what you would expect Kiermaier to do against Kershaw in that plate appearance. I I think it was worth the risk. Yeah, with two strikes, yeah. Yeah, and I was wondering, sort of silly, but at first it looked to me, the first replay I saw, it seemed like the tag had been applied on Margot's helmet Mm -hmm. as it was coming off of his head, Mm -hmm. which uh, was not the case. I think it ultimately was applied there, but there was a, a great still image that caught the catcher's glove touching Marco's hand just before it slid in there but I was kind of wondering like at what point the helmet is no longer person yeah Yeah. like if you if you tag the helmet and it's off your head but like what counts as off your head I mean is it if it's no longer clearly when someone tags your helmet when it's on your head they're not actually touching your body they're touching your helmet and we accept that the helmet is an extension of your of your body and Right. So if the helmet is touching you, but it's not, if you're not wearing it, like then <laughs> yeah. when, right. I, I wondered that too. It seemed like when we first saw that play, right, it, it looked like that's where the tag had gotten him. And then we found out that it's not, but yeah. it, I thought this is a debacle. What, how are they possibly <laughs> going to figure this out? Right. And even earlier on that sequence, it, it was that same trip around the bases, right? That Margot almost got called out on a replay review at third because it was going to be one of those where maybe he came off the bag for a second or like his body was not fully touching the bag because uh, he was sliding so fast and his hands touched it but then he moved beyond it as the glove was still being applied and I was very worried that that was going to be called an out on the replay review and no one likes that call (laughs) everyone hates it and uh, I think Joe Buck on the broadcast was saying at the time this is not what replay is designed to do and we've had that conversation before about how it doesn't seem like it would be a difficult thing to change in the rules that you just say that once the runner makes contact with the base like he has uh he's judged to be in possession of that base like as long as his body is above it or like the airspace above the bag counts as being on the bag just because you don't want a really really important out to happen because uh someone in the process of sliding happened to just 
detach by a millimeter while the fielder was still holding his glove there. So I was kind of relieved. I don't know whether they thought that he was fully in possession and and touching the bag at all times or whether they just decided that we don't want to do this here because it did look like he was not touching the bag at a certain point. So I don't know if that's just uh, doesn't clear the bar for overturning or whether they just wanted to avoid that whole embarrassment of removing that runner on a play that no one thinks should be called that way. But that was a relief. And because he was not called out, we got this really exciting play at home. So that was fun. Yeah, I thought that it wasn't nearly clear enough. It seemed like Uh his right hand might have actually still been on the side of the bag for a lot of that process when his, you know, when his body lifted up. And so Mm -hmm. it seemed like that was going to be a too close call anyway. But I'm not sure I saw anybody get called off on the airspace play this year. And I wonder if Chelsea is actually just like no rule change, but they're just quietly nullifying that on their own. Yeah, maybe. It seems like a dangerous thing, though. If you are going to do that, just just legislate it out of existence because then it makes it even worse if some umpire at some point decides I'm going to apply this literally, yeah. then uh, you know, there's no precedent for it recently. Yeah. I, by the way, I, watching that, I, I, I know that the, uh, the airspace rule is the, uh, the preferred rule of, of all people, mm-hmm. but some people have pointed out that like, well, it might be difficult to figure out exactly when you're above the bag and uh, yeah. could that introduce new complications. And while, while I was watching the Margot play, I thought maybe it could be just as simple as if once both hands touch a base, then you have... Like, that's it. You have possession of the bag. And you can, like, run through if you want, if both hands have touched. But both Mm -hmm. hands have to touch. Like, some sort of rule where both hands, like, ends the pursuit. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. That's probably dumb. So Kershaw gets pulled after five and two-thirds, 85 pitches. And it's funny. I I saw some people suggest, like, when... Roberts took Kershaw out at that point. He was like putting the the focus on his managing, like he was, you know, putting a target on himself for lifting Kershaw at that point. But I think the opposite is just as true, if not more true, because at this point, the big criticism of Roberts when Kershaw's pitching is that he leaves him in too long. So at this point, it almost seems to me like he could pull him almost at any point early in the game and get less criticism than if he leaves him in too long. Like that's the the real danger if Roberts is worried about his reputation now. It's leaving Kershaw in too long, not pulling him too soon. So I didn't think it was too soon. Maybe at this point, I've just seen them be burned so many times by Kershaw staying in for one batter too many or three batters too many or or however many. And uh, so when he comes, it gets him before disaster strikes. I always feel like that's probably preferable to the, the horror story that we've seen so many times before. So he brings in May and this time, finally, May was great. And, uh, He always looks like he has good stuff, but this time he was actually throwing some strikes and getting some whiffs, and and he looked good. So everything worked out for Roberts from that point forward. May was good for an inning and two-thirds, then Gonzalez comes in and gets him out of a a really sticky situation, and then Trinan has a pretty routine save in the ninth. So I saw a lot of headlines like, you know, Roberts pushes the right buttons or pulls the right strings or, you know, he he got everything right in this game. And 
really it's just that, well, his pitchers pitched well. <laughs> you know, the guys that he put in actually delivered. Uh, I think he handled it well, too. But there are a lot of times when he handles it more or less the same way, and it, it just doesn't work because the pitchers <laughs> don't deliver. But this time they did. Yeah, yeah. All of all of his pitching moves were controversial. All of Pretty them. much. All it, of them would have been... Yeah. All of them would have been added to the list if they hadn't worked out. Yeah, uh, there was like a serious talk about like, you know, do you fire Roberts after game four? And there might still be, depending on how game six goes or how game seven goes. If there is a, a game seven, pretty rare for a pennant winning manager to be let go. But there's just uh, there's so much story associated with Roberts and his handling of the bullpen that no one would really bat an eye if that happened. Although, really, if, you, if you're if you going to get to the World Series three times out of four and you get to game six now, it's a pretty high bar to let someone go because, yes, you, you might be able to hire someone who is better at managing a bullpen, but is he going to be as good at everything that gets you to that point? That's the, the thing with Roberts. Like, if you change anything, you're risking potentially not having the success that the Dodgers have had under Roberts, which has been an extreme level of success, except for the fact that they haven't won a World Series. So you have to decide, is this guy so bad at in-game tactics that you think you can't win a World Series with him because he will inevitably screw up a, a bullpen move in Game 6 of the World Series? Or are you going to just ride with that guy because he keeps getting you back there and you keep having one of the best regular season teams of all time? So it's it's tough. Like you could bring in a, a good tactician who loses the clubhouse or something, or the players don't like him. And clearly that is not really an issue with Roberts. I thought this was a great Kershaw start for curse breaking narrative because yeah. we already knew that Kershaw could dominate in the postseason. He's done it a bunch. He's looked as good in some postseason appearances as anybody. The sort of ongoing story with Kershaw is not that, well, he comes out and he's just awful. He just looks terrible. He can't do anything right. Uh, he gets the yips. It's none of that. It's like, you know, he'll, he, he dominates and then the next start he comes out and he's doing fine through four and then everything falls apart or he's mm -hmm. doing fine through six and then everything falls apart or he's doing fine through seven and then everything falls apart. And it's that sense that that he is actually like not even quite not even bad. It's not that he can't pitch in postseason. It's that things go wrong when he's around. It's like he's like he's like he's like the Angela Lansbury of of postseason <laughs> baseball where things start to get a little wild and then there's a corpse. And <laughs> this time things did start to get a little wild and not wild, but like you know, things started to get bad and then he just kept pitching and then yeah. they were fine. And mm -hmm. there was no, there were lots of times where it would have seemed like a continuation of the Kershaw story where a couple of people got on and you thought, oh, suddenly it's going to be a five run inning. And then it just never was a five run inning. He just, he got the outs he needed to. He had the lead that he needed. He managed to sort of skate on the margin that they gave him. And he didn't look like bad luck or he didn't look like shaky or he didn't look like destined to fail. Mm -hmm. It just like he had B plus stuff and he pitched well enough to win. And that's I feel like in some sense, that's the game that has been 
uh, that, I mean, it's often say, said, this is sort of a cliche, but it's often said about good pitchers that they know how to win even when they don't have their A stuff. And, and that kind of game where Kershaw maybe doesn't have his very dominant stuff or when things don't work out perfectly, that's been the game that he hasn't won in his postseason career and that he mm -hmm. probably almost always wins in his regular season career. Like that's how you go 18 and three is you win those games and he won that game. And I feel like that in a sense, like as much as a one hit shutout would have done in a way, this actually made me feel like, oh, that's right. Kershaw is normal. He's not a supernaturally cursed presence in the field. And, you know, teams should be happy when he's starting, which, yeah. uh, which then I'm going to just say though, that like, the other side of things, though, is that just when you think that Kershaw's beaten the narrative <laughs> or just when you think that Kershaw's thrown a good game, that's when it gets pulled out from under you. And so we should note that Kershaw's probably going to pitch again in this series, <laughs> or there's a pretty good chance that he will. He certainly will be in the bullpen if there's a game seven. And yes. I'm wondering, do you actually think that, like, is it? is i think he could pitch in game six it, it almost makes more sense that he might pitch game six perhaps maybe not maybe that's unrealistic maybe one day's rest isn't enough for him to throw an inning of relief mm -hmm. but he pitched on one day's rest in the division series in 2016 in his you know probably previous high high moment as a postseason pitcher yeah and Walker Bueller's got game seven, so you're a lot less likely to need him than game six when you have Gonsolin, who's been basically used as a opener in the postseason. Mm -hmm. And Urias would also be on short rest. He'll only have had two days off for game six. So you could make the case that it'd be better to save him for game seven uh, than to use him in game six. And if you need to get through that game, I, I wonder if they look at Kershaw and say, We're gonna need we're gonna need another inning out of you in this series. And surprise it's actually in game six not game seven yeah well robert said that uh bueller and urias and kershaw i think are unavailable in game six but who knows he said that before and sometimes kershaw just insists on pitching it's definitely true that you would expect him to be needed more or someone to be needed more in game six with gonsolin going than in game seven but i would think not I, I would certainly hope not I think uh, at his current age and effectiveness and with his back issues I would hope that that wouldn't happen and I kind of hope it doesn't happen even in game seven like at this point Kershaw has made five starts this postseason he has a, a sub three ERA he struck out 37 in 30 and two-thirds innings against five walks like he's pitched really well he had the the brilliant start against the Brewers he had the excellent start in game one of this series and he had the shaky start in the NLCS but all told he has been really great as as good as you could expect this version of Clayton Kershaw to be and I hope that they just leave it there I mean I would hope that he's not needed like if the Dodgers are going to win this thing I can't really think of a scenario where, let's say they get to Game 7, if they're winning Game 7, if it's a close game, is there any scenario where you would want Kershaw to pitch? Because you figure Bueller's got to be good for them to win, probably Urias would be the first lefty out of the pen and the first starter out of the pen if you need one, so... I don't know that I can imagine a scenario where I would say, yes, Kershaw should be the, the person pitching here over 
those two guys over Victor Gonzalez, over, you know, Caleric, uh, huh. if you need a lefty. Like, really? Wait, you can't imagine a scenario? You can't I can imagine, imagine one where Dave Roberts does it, but... A scenario I, where you would pick Kershaw over Victor Gonzalez? I don't think so. I mean, no. I like Gonzalez, but you can't imagine a scenario where you no. would do that? I mean, um, it's I can two days very, rest or whatever. No, it is. I, don't think so. I mean, I'm not asking you to say it's the most likely scenario, but you can't imagine it. No. Okay, where, it's not two days. Say, it's yeah. not two days rest. It's his throw day. That's what you need to yeah, rephrase okay. it. It's his throw day. He <laughs> okay. can. I mean, he is definitely in the bullpen for that game, and he probably has two innings in him if they're if they're clean. And I mean, we're I, I'm I'm just naming other pitchers here, but Madison Bumgarner was on two days rest when he threw the last what five innings of Game Seven, mm-hmm. and Madison Bumgarner had thrown a complete game in Game Five. Kershaw threw. 78 pitches or something because that's what the Dodgers do and has literally not thrown 100 pitches all year long and it was a 60 game season so I'm pretty sure that Kershaw's in pretty good physical shape I mean other than the the, the balky back which rears up every so often rears up back rears up <laughs> so I think I, I I almost can't imagine I can't imagine I can imagine anything Ben I yes. I would suspect that Kershaw is I mean I would think that if if it were my plan he would be Probably the second or third most likely pitcher to appear in that game behind Bueller and maybe Urias. Maybe Urias. Why would Urias? I mean, one extra day does everything for you. Urias is not Clayton Kershaw as a pitcher. Kershaw has obviously got, you know, 200 some plus innings in postseason. He's closed out the, you know, he's come in in relief on short rest in the postseason and done it effectively and also ineffectively. He is, you know, he's Clayton Kershaw. He's your franchise ace and he's both the better pitcher and i don't think that the one day of difference would be enough for me to bump arias up now it might be enough if i needed three innings then maybe it would i mean you'd have to know how each pitcher's stamina is and how they've bounced back from their start so if if for instance bueller got knocked out in the second and Urias came in to throw four, I would say that's more likely probably than Kershaw coming in to throw four. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about one inning, then yeah, I think that if I'm drawing 27 outs up, then I start with 15 for Bueller and three from Kershaw and go from there. And maybe hmm. six from Kershaw and go from there. Yeah, I think I would go Bueller, Urias before Kershaw and maybe Victor Gonzalez before Kershaw too. <laughs> maybe part of it is like what we're talking about with the, the history of all of these Dodgers. And if you just showed me the, the stat line of Clayton Kershaw and said, hey, this is your, your ace over this period and he's uh, on his throw day, I'd say, sure, let him throw. Maybe I've just like seen Kershaw fail too many times in the playoffs and, and I don't want that to be the story (laughs) that would be even more heartbreaking if he gets to game seven having pitched so well throughout this postseason and this series like if they just if they just don't pitch him anymore he has two wins if you care about wins in this world series like if the dodgers win Kershaw will go down as someone who really contributed to this series, even a possible MVP, maybe. I don't know if he'd deserve it, but but might get it. And if they lose, he won't be blamed because he held up his end. They won his starts. And so part of it is almost just, you know, me being afraid for him and and for all of us having to endure what would happen if he came in and lost game seven or something. But also I I just think I I would not want him right now on a performance basis ahead of those other guys. Yeah, it's also possible. I mean, it's very easy to imagine 
plenty of scenarios, not the most likely, but plenty of scenarios where Walker Bueller goes two and a third. I mean, it's a game seven. You have a very quick hook. If he has a bad inning, if he's wild, mm-hmm. if he gives up four runs, he's probably out of there. And then you've got a lot of outs to yes. go. But do you, by the way, I know that the obviously, obviously the most important thing to the manager and to the front office, to the team is to win the game and all that. But does question uh, if you're breaking a 33 year franchise drought does the question of who you want in the picture at the end you know getting the final out does it come to into play at all for you like like let me just say that like let's say the dodgers win the game by 11 yeah do you do you send kershaw out for the ninth yes or yes you, i would yes okay. if what you if, if you had a comfortable lead i would okay. say let him do it what if it's so six, you, would you send him out if it were six, a uh, six run lead? Yeah. Okay. Assuming, you know, that it's the Dodgers and, and they don't have uh, lights out closer okay. that they could use instead. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, what if it's, what if you have determined, what if you're like me and you agree that Kershaw is your, say your, your third option in that game? Like you are very committed to getting Kershaw in this game unless Bueller goes eight. So you have a, say a two run lead in the seventh and there's nobody out, and Pedro Baez has started the inning (laughs) by walking the first two batters. So tying runs on, seventh inning, nobody out, and you've got nine outs to go. So you know you're going to go probably Kershaw and some combination of of maybe two other pitchers. Does any part of you think hold Kershaw for the ninth for the photo, for the video, and then because you know that you're going to need three from Dustin May anyway, so bring May in there or bring mm-hmm. Gonzalez in there. Does that – obviously, no. Like, you don't make the decision based on that. I, like, I know that you don't make the decision. But does that even enter your mind? Do you even have to think, like, does this matter to me? Or does that does it just not even show up in your thought process? I think probably if I were the manager, it would not really show yeah. up. I think uh, for a, a neutral person or even for a fan, maybe, I don't know, probably for the fans, like they just want a World Series at this point. I don't think they care who's on the mound at the end. Narratively, it would be satisfying, sure, if Kershaw were there to just drive a stake into his narrative and the Dodgers drought and all of it at once. That would be a really fitting ending, but unless it were just like total toss-up tiebreaker 50-50 thing, you know, at that point, if there's no difference between your options, then sure, I guess have the guy who's going to show up in the World Series videos and be on the front page, have it be Kershaw instead of someone else. But otherwise, just make sure you get that win, I think. (laughs) A lot of this conversation in the last 12 minutes has been about how a Game 7 might go, but Mm -hmm. um, they have to... Yeah, I mean, seems well, like I mean they're kind of like in it's it's only three games to do, but they are kind of crushing the race. Yeah, in some ways <laughs> they they yeah they have outhit them by a considerable. <laughs> yes, amount. yes, they have. Um, in fact, I'm looking right now. Let me see. I'm looking right now. I'm curious what how much is it? Oh, I could tell you. Yeah, no, I could tell you. Let's see. Yeah. I have a big spreadsheet. Well, the Dodgers have an 860 OPS, and the Rays have a 707 OPS. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's the difference between, well, the Dodgers and a 707 OPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big difference. And we just uh, we covered what it took for the Rays to win in game four. I mean, they, they had to do a lot of 
good and deserving stuff to get to the point where they could win on a wacky wild play where the Dodgers messed up in multiple ways, but that did have to happen. But I guess I'm just talking about Game 7 with more certainty than I should probably just because this is a rematch of Game 2 in the starting pitchers, and this is the one that you would favor the race, right? I mean, Snell against Gonsolin. We just haven't really seen Gonsolin be his regular season self. And this time he is starting and he is on regular rest, I I think. And so it's different from a lot of his previous postseason appearances. So maybe the Dodgers got May straightened out with his mechanical changes and looking good out of the bullpen in game five. And maybe they'll get Gonsolin straightened out in game six and then this series will be over. But it would not be surprising if uh, Snell outpitches him again and, and the Rays win that one and force a game seven. So, yeah, well, for the sake of wanting to see more baseball, I mean, yes. I'm not going to say who I'm rooting for, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> I'd like to see game seven. Yeah, I was uh, just looking at just how do the Dodgers are just (laughs) to win this thing. I mean, I think we all know that based on how good they've been. But I was adding up like the the peak championship win probability for various teams in certain seasons. So every team, if you pick a season, you go by the stat championship win probability and they all have a high number. Their odds of winning the World Series were highest. And with some teams, it's, you know, 3% because they never had a chance really. And then with some teams, uh, you win the World Series, it's it's one. It's 100, you won. Good job. With the Dodgers, if you look from 2013 to 2019, I added up their peak Uh, championship probability from each of those seasons and it's like 2.5 championships is like what they should have won in that time and the Red Sox are at 2.4 for those same years and they won two championships but the Dodgers didn't it's just because the Red Sox won the World Series twice but they also missed the playoffs entirely a few times or they didn't go deep into the playoffs the Dodgers make the playoffs every year and they have made it deep into the playoffs some of those years and so if you add it up the expectation is they really should have won a championship at some point and now it's like 3.4 or something because they got to this point in this series I think at some point in game four their odds of winning the the series were like let's see I have it here I mean did you say you're you've added their peak yes likelihood the peak over the course of an entire year yes so like at at, at a certain oh, point in the I don't know I don't know if that no? I don't know if that works <laughs> no, I'm not sure I like that it's it's fuzzy math but uh, I'm just saying uh, if if you're a Dodgers fan like at some point in that year you were uh, thinking we have this chance of winning and then you don't I mean obviously you go into the year and maybe the Dodgers if they're I mean wait the best no team, have uh, like hang, on, hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on yeah by this method uh-huh. there'd be like probably like two or three champions a year well there's only one team that has a a 100 no but if you compare every team's peak at any point over the course of a seven-month process and add all the peaks up yes that would probably be like three championships there would be more than one team that more than one championship yeah 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 (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, it's different from looking at it just as like what are your odds going into the year or even going into the postseason when the Dodgers are the favorite and it's still like 20% 
chance or something and and the field is the rest so it's it's a weird way to look at it i understand but but the dodgers like in game four they had a an 84 percent chance to win the world series in that game at the the point when they were likeliest to win and then they lost that game but this is this is like saying if if i flip 100 coins and i add up how many of them were heads at some point I should be expected to have a hundred heads. <laughs> I guess that's true. But if you're the Dodgers and you're there every year, I mean, this sort of exaggerates, I, I guess, by looking at when they were most likely to win. But the point is that, like, at some point in like all of those years, almost there were three of the the past four years, they were more likely than not to win the World Series, right? Because they were very likely to win at one point in the 2017 World Series. They were like. Like 50.1% to win the 2018 World Series at, uh, I don't know, the beginning or, or some point in there. And they've been very likely to win the 2020 World Series during this series, too. So all I'm saying is their fans have had uh, many shots at this. They have had many shots at this. And they have felt like they were about to be there many times. And now they are really close, uh, not closer than they've been necessarily, but uh, about as close as they were before. And maybe this will be the time, but maybe it won't because uh, mm. the rates are good too. Mm. All right. All we right. will see what happens and we'll be back to talk about it all. Okay, that will do it for today. Thanks as always for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Andrew Fearman, Jesse Weber, Bill Gallagher, Matt Lindner, and Pete Rose. Probably not really Pete Rose, different Pete Rose perhaps. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Sam and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another episode a little later this week, probably post-World Series. So enjoy the rest, and we will talk to you after it's over. I open